0: Bibles, go to Nehemiah chapter nine. Chapter nine, we're going to pick up just the last verse, verse thirty-eight, and we're going to jump right into chapter ten this morning, and I'll show you why we're doing that. But um, so we've been walking through the book of Nehemiah this fall and looking at what does, it take, what does it mean to take new ground for God's glory, and Nehemiah and his people are a great case study for that. I mean, just a great example of how they're pressing forward for the Lord in a new way. And uh, the first half of the book, the first six chapters or so, are mainly about him rebuilding the walls and rallying the people to this great, um, you know, resource to to protect the city and to protect the people, so God's worship can be restored there in Jerusalem. But then, in chapter seven and on, he kind of shifts, and he's no longer focused on rebuilding walls. He's focused on rebuilding people, and the worship of the people, and the hearts of the people, and calling them back to the Lord. And so I mentioned that, I think last week, we're going to do a, kind of a three-week little mini-series here on worship. And what does it mean to really press in and take new ground in worshiping the Lord together? And last week, we saw that started with humility and confession, right, of the people coming before the Lord. And this week's going to build right on top of that with the idea of repentance. And then we're going to see the difference of those this week as we press in. But as we think about repentance and worship, I was thinking back to just kind of growing up. I, most of you know my story. I grew up in the church. I've been in church a long time, been in all kinds of different churches. And what I noticed when I was growing up especially was that the language that was used a lot of times was this. Okay, first, we're going to have the worship, and then we're going to have the preaching, right? And, and there became this kind of vernacular in the church, I think in some cases, where worship was, became synonymous with music, And with singing, and it was kind of, that's the way we thought about it. And so we have, you know, worship pastors and worship teams that have worship nights, and and it's all focused on music alone. And honestly, when we look biblically, that's a very narrow focus. Now, music is important, don't get me wrong. We love, if you didn't catch on, we love to sing here at Harvest. We love to worship in song. We believe it's biblical. You read through the book of Psalms, you cannot get away from the call to worship the Lord through music. But that's not the totality of worship, right? And so we try to here at Harvest have a vernacular, have a a language, because language creates culture, right? And so we try to have a language that speaks of worship in a broader sense. We worship through prayer. We worship through giving, right? Oftentimes I'll say, open your Bibles and let's continue to worship the Lord through the study of his word, right? We worship through preaching. We worship through serving, as Rick was just talking about in the video. These are all acts of worship. It's all part of that because Worship is much more than songs and lyrics. Worship is a position of the heart before the Lord. It's a humbling of myself. It's a a getting low before God and giving him the glory that he's due. And so what I want you to see here in the people that Nehemiah is leading here, the Israelites, is that a life of worship is composed of my sacrificial repentance, not merely song lyrics. A true life of worship is composed of sacrificial repentance, not just merely song lyrics. So with that in mind, look at, with me in chapter 9, Nehemiah, starting in verse 38. It says, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Verse 1 of chapter 10. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Saraiah, and then it goes through a big long list of names. I'm not going to take time to read, but those are all the priests. If you see down in verse 8, it says, and these are the priests. Then in verse 9, it says, and the Levites, Jeshua and his crew. And then verse 14, we get to the chiefs of the people, Perash, and all the chiefs are listed. And then here's the key. Look at verse 28. After it lists all the names out, it says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. First thing about repentance is this. Repentance is turning away from sin. Repentance starts with turning away from my sin. Now, again, we started in verse 38 of chapter 9 because it really feeds into chapter 10 more. It's kind of this transition verse that kind of sets us up to go into chapter 10. And actually, if you go back and look at the Hebrew Bible, verse 38 of chapter 9 in our Bibles is actually verse 1 of chapter 10 in their Bibles. All right, So it's, it's very much part of this unit here. And it says this, because of all this, because of all what? Right, like that's the transition. And so it's pointing back here to the last couple chapters that we've just studied. Because of hearing God's word and knowing what it says, because of remembering God's character that we saw last week through their prayer, because of seeing their sin clearly in light of God's word, in light of God's character, because of all this, it's time to act. And so they make a covenant with the lord. So let's talk about covenant for a second because I've touched this a couple times in various sermons but we haven't done a lot on covenant yet. So, covenant, especially in the Bible in this time period was a binding agreement between two people. Biblically speaking, it's a binding agreement between God and his people, right? It was an agreement that they were making together and there are actually several covenants throughout the Old Testament. There's several different covenants that God does with people throughout the Old Testament, but here's the interesting thing about covenants in the Bible. God is always the one who initiates the covenant. It's not the people. It's God coming and saying, hey, this is how it's going to work, and you're going to come with me, right? And so for the here that they said they're going to make a covenant with God, it's really not so much them making a new covenant. It's more like a covenant renewal, right? They're actually just going back, and they're taking back up the covenant that God has already made with them that they've been violating for all these years. And they're saying, we're going to recommit ourselves to this covenant with God, because in the covenant, they were recommitting themselves, not just to a covenant, not just to a document, but to a relationship. See, this whole idea of covenant is really about worship. It's about getting back in the right relationship with God in worship. And so they come together to make this covenant, and it says they sealed it with the names of all these people, all these leaders. So they, they say Nehemiah the governor and Zedekiah, those were the civic leaders, and then you have the list of the priests. And then you have the list of the Levites and the chiefs of the people. And then in verse 28, it says, And the rest of all the people who all separated themselves. So I think what's important about the list here is that Nehemiah is showing us that there is a very particular, distinct, unified group of people who are doing this. This isn't just like, hey, okay, anybody who's interested, jump on board. No, like they, they have a very specific, the people who have separated themselves from the people of the lands, and are coming together to make this covenant with the Lord. And it describes them as such. It says, All who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God. There's repentance. Separating themselves from sin to be with God. The visual picture of repentance is actually turning. right? So I was walking this way, with the peoples of the land, I was walking this way in sin, and now I'm going to turn, and I'm going to walk this way with God. That's repentance, and that's what they're claiming, that's what they're calling themselves to here. Now, that phrase there, peoples of the land, is kind of an interesting phrase. So what that means is, again, you have the Israelites, who were God's chosen people, they were the god's people who were committed to God, they worshipped God, they believed in his word. And then you had other people who lived around them, other nations that worshipped other gods. Right? They had other uh, things that they followed. They did not follow Yahweh. They did not follow his word. And so because of that, when the Israelites started doing life with these other people from other nations, they started being led into sin. Because they were hanging out with people who didn't believe in God and didn't follow God. And so they started acting like them instead of acting like what God had called them to do. And so it's not so much that they're blaming the people, but it's just a reality that whenever you are around sin over and over and over again, eventually that starts to have an impact on you. And so the people here, they had separated themselves from the people of the land in order to basically separate themselves from their sin so they could walk in God's law. They even say, to observe and do all the commandments. What I think is important in there is that this is a deliberate and decisive choice to turn away from sin and follow God. Repentance doesn't just happen by happenstance. Repentance doesn't just happen gradually as you kind of learn a little bit more about the Bible or you, learn a little, you hang out around Christians a little bit more or you come to harvest you know, more than two Sundays in a row. Like, that just doesn't automatically lead to repentance. Repentance has to be a decisive choice in your heart to say, I'm done with that and I'm following the Lord. And that's what they're saying here in this. And they even go into the point of saying that we take upon a curse and an oath upon ourselves in, as part of this covenant. Now, the whole curse language feels a little weird to us. <laughs> we don't really talk like that anymore. When we think about curses, they're usually not positive things. Like they're, like we wouldn't associate that with God's covenant. But this is actually covenantal language. Right? Because when you set up a covenant in this time period, it was already understood that if you kept the covenant, there would be blessings, there would be favor, there would be the goodness of God on your life. But if you defiled the covenant, if you didn't keep the covenant, there would be curses. There would be consequences. There would be punishment in that way. And that's why they were in exile for all these years, right? And so they're actually just basically showing the seriousness of their repentance here, saying, like, God, we are all in with you. No more sin, only keeping God's law. Now, this right here is the difference between confession and repentance, And this is a super important distinction here because so many, I think even in the church, think that confession and repentance are the same thing. And they're definitely connected, but they're different. Confession is what we talked about last week. Confession is just agreeing with God that, yes, this is sin, and I was wrong. That's confession. That's biblical confession. This is sin, I was wrong, I agree with God. And that's a good first step. That's a necessary first step. To deal with sin in our life but if we stop there at confession then nothing changes we might agree that it's sin but we'll go right back to that sin over and over and over what's necessary is the next step of repentance not just saying yes it's sin but now turning away from that sin and following after the ways of the lord rather than the ways of the world so repentance is the next step past confession, and it's what is ultimately necessary if we're going to be worshipers of Christ. And so here, they commit themselves to full-fledged repentance, keeping God's law, following God's law. God, we got this. We're all in. Yes. But if you know anything else about the Bible, or just people in general, they're not going to keep the covenant. Right? Right? they're not going to stay sinless. They're not going to follow God's law. In fact, they can't. Because they're humans with broken, sinful hearts, just like us. And that's where grace comes in. Because God already knows they can't keep it. God already knows, when they're making the covenant, God already knows that he's going to have to forgive them again. He's going to have to help them again because they're not going to stay where they've claimed they are. And this is, is the underlying story of all humanity for all time. That all of us, no matter how much we think we want to follow God, there's a flesh in us, there's a heart in us that is rebellious and wants to go our own way and do our own thing, and I don't care what you say, God, I want this, and so I'm going after that instead. We all wrestle with that. And that sin, that rebellion against God, separates us from him. Just like the people were separated from God for all these years because of their sin, sin separates us from God. And there's no way for us to fix that. Because no matter how hard we try, no matter how much I say, God, I'm going to do it, I'm going to be perfect, I'm not going to sin anymore, there's something inside of me that always calls me back. And so God knew that. He knew that about us, that we can't do it ourselves. We can't be perfect on our own. We can't fulfill the covenant. We don't have it in us. And so he sent someone to do it for us. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to come to live a perfect life, to live a sinless life, to perfectly keep the covenant with God, to be righteous in our place. And then he chose at the end of that life to go to the cross and die a sinner's death so that he could give us his righteousness. He could give us his perfect covenant-keeping life and take our sin and our debt and the wrath that we deserved upon himself. He stood in our place for our sin and he was killed and he was buried and then three days later he rose back to life. And he said, I am God, and I have defeated sin, and I have defeated death, and if you will come, if you will turn away from your sin, like everything we're talking about today, if you will turn away from your sin and put your faith in me alone, I will save you from all of that. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new life. I will make you part of my family, and you will be changed forever. doesn't mean we're perfect. We still wrestle with this sin calling, this fleshly heart that we have, But with Jesus, he can wash that away when we fail and take us right back to the Father because of grace. He kept the covenant because we couldn't. This is why we need Jesus. This is why we need repentance. Because it's the only way we get from sin to worship. I don't know where you're at on that today. I don't know if you've made that choice yet, that decisive moment in your heart to say I'm done with that and I want Jesus, my faith is in you, save me and change me. If you haven't had that moment yet, man, today is the day. There is no better moment than right now for you to pray and ask God to save you from your sin and change your heart so you can have a whole new life with him. I hope you'll do that. So the people here, they're repenting. They're turning from sin. They're confessing. They're repenting, and they're, they're, they're saying, God, we're going to follow you now. So I've noticed something in our house. I am, I am seriously, seriously, I am convinced That there is some hidden, secret, malicious part of TV and movies that hypnotizes our children. Does anybody else ever experience this in your house? Right? Like, if there is a screen on anywhere around, my kids are out to lunch. Like you got you you can't talk to them, you can't get them to do anything. They are just completely zoned in. On the TV no conversations they are glued to it and they could even care less about what the program is it doesn't even matter what's on the screen like they are just this summer we were traveling on vacation to North Carolina and we stopped at this little Mexican restaurant in the middle of nowhere and we were getting some dinner and they had like one little TV on the other side of the dining room playing like soccer or something in Spanish My kids could care less about soccer, and the only Spanish they know is, like, door style. You know what I'm talking about, right? So, like, there's no way they were interested in this, and yet they could not carry on a conversation at dinner to save their lives, because they were just glued to this crazy screen. Sometimes at home, one or two of them will be watching something on TV, and the other one's supposed to be, like, doing homework or doing some chores or something, and if, there's like, if it's on in the same room, forget it. Or like, I have to like physically go and turn them away from the screen and make them face the other direction or even take them to another room so they'll do what they're supposed to do because as long as that distraction is there, if they don't turn away from the distraction, they can't do what they're supposed to do. The same thing is true for us in sin. No matter how far away from it you are, no matter how small it is, no matter how much you care or don't care about it, if you are focused on that, if you are giving your attention, if you are hypnotized to the allure of sin in your life, you will not be able to follow Christ. You have to turn away. You have to put it behind you and follow Jesus. It's the only way. I can't walk in sin and worship God. I need repentance. I think too often as Christians we try to play this game. I'm still going to church, I'm still going to small group, I'm still giving, I'm still serving. So I'm I'm good with God. I can still have this little pet sin over here. I can still have this little thing hidden away in the closet of my life that it's my thing. Nobody has to know about it. It's just, it's not bothering anybody, right? I got, I got this under control. As long as I'm doing all this other stuff, I'm good. I'm worshiping the Lord. And God looks at all that stuff you're doing and says, no, it's tainted. Until you turn from this, all that is just lip service. It ha- worship has to flow from a heart of repentance. So that's the first thing about repentance. Second thing, look at verse 30. Now they get even more specific. It says, "'We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land "'or take their daughters for our sons. "'And if the peoples of the land bring in goods "'or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, "'we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. "'And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year in the exaction of every debt.'" Uh, 32, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third a part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering, to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. 35. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all of our fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from the ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. Second thing about repentance is this. Point number two, repentance is being specific about my sin. Repentance is being specific about my sin. Here's the reality, friends. You can't turn from sin unless you know specifically what you are turning from. Right? It's gotta be there first. It's kind of like whenever you go, somebody comes up to you and you're like, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, that I that I, that I hurt you. And you're like, sorry for what? I'm like, I don't know, I'm just sorry because I hurt you. No, no, no. That doesn't count. Right? Like that's not that's not it. You have to be specific in order to turn from sin. The people here start getting specific about their sins. And we actually, we see here two types of sin, two categories, if you will, that they repent of, that are both exhibited. So let me give you the first one. The first one is the sins of commission, okay? So the first category or type of sin is sins of commission. These, this is when I do something that I'm not supposed to do, okay? So I've been, God said, don't do this, and I still do it. That's a sin of commission, Right? They give three examples of sins of commission here. Let me, let me point them out for you. It says, first of all, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters. What are they talking about there? Well, first of all, let me clarify. They are talking about interfaith marriage. Okay? They are not talking about interracial marriage. Right? Nowhere in the Bible does it speak against or say there's anything wrong with interracial marriage. That is perfectly fine. The problem God has here is not interracial but interfaith marriage because the peoples of the land around them worshipped other gods. And so as they would start to marry them, now you're putting two people in a household that have two different religious beliefs, two different gods that they're worshipping, two different um, uh, you know, faiths that they're following, and that just doesn't work. But the people had been doing this. They'd been having these interfaith marriages because it was socially advantageous right? If they married a wealthier family or a more well-to-do family in the area or higher up in position, then it would help their family. And so it was all about this kind of social maneuvering that they were doing in these marriages, and they were neglecting the teaching of the Lord that said, don't marry people of other faiths. And so today, how does this apply to us? Well, the New Testament actually says the same thing. It talks about being, to not be unequally yoked, Okay, this is in 2 Corinthians 6.14. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness. So Paul's saying the exact same thing. Like, why would you marry someone who doesn't have the same faith as you, who doesn't follow God? Because then you're trying to mix light and darkness. You're trying to, to mix righteousness and lawlessness, like it just doesn't work. Now, there's also a caveat before we get too far down this road in the New Testament. That if you're already married to someone who does not follow Christ, that doesn't mean that you should go divorce them, okay? The Bible is very clear, both in 1 Peter 3 and 1 Corinthians 7, that if you find yourself in, this, in a relationship with someone who's not of the same faith as you, that you should stay in the marriage as long as they're willing to and be a witness to them. Show them the love of Christ. Show them the love of, of the Savior and try to be a, a, a good witness so that they might also come to know Christ, Now, if they leave, then you're free. But as much as you're able, stay and be a witness in their life. So this isn't so much talking about if you already find yourself there for various reasons. Sometimes this happens because you didn't know before you got married. Sometimes it happens because you were both unbelievers when you got married, and then somebody gets saved, and the other one hasn't got saved yet. Like, there's lots of ways this can play out. But what this is really talking about is if you're still single, don't marry an unbeliever. Which, by the way, if you're still single, that also means you probably, not probably, you shouldn't be dating an unbeliever. Because guess where that's headed? Okay? So take the wisdom of the Lord, take the wisdom of some other people in our church who I can tell you for sure would say, don't do that. All right. Second one that they get to is, we will not buy from the people of the land on the Sabbath. So the sin they're talking about here is pointed at the Sabbath day. So God sets up in the Old Testament, actually prior to the law, he sets up this idea of Sabbath for his people. That we're supposed to take one day a week to rest, both physically and spiritually. This is a day of rest and set apart for the Lord, for worship, and for communion with him. All right. Now, the Jews were actually pretty good about keeping the Sabbath. This is one of the ones they usually were pretty strict on. But what they're talking about here is that they weren't so much working on the Sabbath, but the other people around them in the land, the outsiders who didn't believe in God, didn't follow the Sabbath, they would come into Jerusalem or they would come into the Jewish cities and they would try to sell the Jews goods on the Sabbath. So it was kind of a gray area, right? It was kind of a loophole, if you will. They were like, well, we're not really sinning because we're not working. We're not making any other Jews work. We're just buying from these non-Jews, so it's not that big of a deal. We can do that and it's okay. But here they're saying, no, we're going to stop buying from others on the sabbath because what they're getting at is sometimes maybe you've heard the same before there's one thing to follow the letter of the law it's a whole other thing to follow the spirit of the law right? the spirit of the law was set aside a day where you're not doing any type of business so you can be focused on the lord and resting in him and they weren't doing that so they're going to correct it now so again does this still apply to us today absolutely. It was actually kind of funny. I was preparing for this, and I had a guy in our church text me with a question. He's like, hey, me and my wife are having this conversation, and blah, blah, blah. Is, you know, what do you say? And I'm like, yeah, you need a Sabbath, right? This is still important for us today because we're still called to have this day of rest in the Lord, both physical rest and spiritual rest. And it's really about trust, right? Sabbath all comes down to trust, Am I willing to trust the Lord and do what he says and take one day off a week? And if I do that, do I trust God enough to take the other six days and get everything done that I need to get done? Will God take care of me? Will he take care of my business? Will he take care of my finances? Will he take care of my family the other six days if I give him one? And the answer is yes, he will. But we have to be willing to let him have control And to lay it down for a day and be like, all right, God, I trust you that when I come back tomorrow, everything's still going to be okay, the world's still going to be spinning, and (laughs) and we're all going to make it past next week, right? So Sabbath is important. The third one they talk about is we will forego crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So this is pointed at kind of two laws in the Old Testament that both have this idea of generous stewardship right? Being wise and generous stewards of what God has given us. So God had two things. He said, first of all, don't misuse the land. In other words, every seven years, take a year off. Don't plant anything. Give the ground a break so it can kind of refresh itself, and then you can move forward. This is why even farmers today oftentimes will rotate their fields, right? Because it needs a break every once in a while. That's just good stewardship. So God's saying, hey, take a, take a year off every seven years, and trust me that I'm going to provide enough for you in the other six years the seventh year, it can lay dormant, and you'll be okay. So it's being a good steward of the land. And then it says, we're going to forego the exaction of every debt. So there was also a part of this where God said, every seven years, you're supposed to um, basically dismiss or release any debt that is currently within the Jewish people. So if you made somebody a loan, and they haven't got it all paid back yet, and they're still struggling to pay it back after seven years, you need to release them from that. Right? Don't, don't take extra. Don't, don't, don't exploit others' weaknesses in order to profit yourself. That's the idea. Basically, the whole idea here is for both of these is just to be gracious and generous because we have a God who is gracious and generous. But the people hadn't been doing that. They had been keeping the debts. They had been keeping farming the land. And so again, how does this apply to us today? This is a little bit more of a, 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 more of a harder parallel because we don't really have, most of us don't farm land anymore, right? Um, and, and we're not giving out personal debt loans. Like we have organizations that do that now. We don't do that personally so much anymore. But I think the spirit, again, the spirit of the law here is don't run your business, don't run your personal finances so tight and so leveraged that you don't have any space to be generous. That you don't have any space to let the Lord work and maybe take some time off for your family and, like, maybe, you know, like, take some space when you need it. We don't always have to be turning a profit on everything all the time. Maybe we need to live a little less so that we can give God a little bit more of ourselves and more of what he's asked us to do. Don't just look for what you can gain from someone else. Look what you can give to someone else. So those are the three sins of commission that they talk about. But then they go through another list, and this is a different type of sin. It's called sins of omission. Sins of omission is when I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing, all right? So when God says, do this, but I'm failing to do it. Those are, and these are ones that are sometimes harder for us to catch because you're not necessarily going out and doing anything wrong. You're just not doing what God has called you to do or told you to do. Let me give you the examples they give here. So, first of all, it says, We will give yearly a third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. What's that talking about? So, if you go back to Leviticus, God put in place what he called the temple tax, all right? Or that's what he didn't call it that, but the people kind of called it that. And so it was the idea that they, people were supposed to give an offering. Um, each year of a certain amount to the temple to be used for sacrifices, specifically for the atonement of their sins and other worship acts of sacrifice. But over time, they had stopped giving that because when the Babylonians and the Assyrians had conquered them and taken them into exile, and now the Persians, they were taxing the people so heavily that the people felt they couldn't afford it. And the governments, oftentimes after they took their tax, they would actually take part of the tax and they would give it back to the people or back to the temples at least, to use for religious services. So basically the temple tax right now is being paid by the government rather than by God's people. And God says, no, 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 you're supposed to do this. It's not supposed to come from somebody else. This is for the atonement of your sins, right? This needs to be personal that you're the one giving this to the house of the Lord. And this is supposed to be meant to support the worship of your God, and so you need to be the one sowing this in. And so they are recommitting themselves to give what God had always, already told them to give that they were not giving to the temple. The second one says, We have cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God. All right, so now the wood offering was needed for the sacrifices we just talked about because there was supposed to be basically this, this forever flame burning in the temple. Right, they were supposed to have this fire burning night and day 24 7, so that anytime somebody came in to make a sacrifice, there would be a fire to do it on. Now, if you've ever done a little backyard barbecue or a fire pit thing, like, think about how much wood you had to have for a couple hours. <laughs> now, think about how much wood you would have to have to keep that fire going 24 7 all the time, year round. It's a lot of wood. And so, God had told the people, you need to supply wood to the temple so that we can keep this fire going for the sacrifices. But there really wasn't a specific way that he told them to do that. So Nehemiah is coming around here, and he's putting in some practical measures, and he's creating a schedule, saying, all right, this house is going to do it this week, and this house is going to do it this week, and these people are going to do it this week, and he divides it all up to make sure that it's going to be taken care of. It's good, practical measures, planning, so that the worship of God does not become unhindered. But the people take to this And they're happy to do it because they see this as an opportunity to serve the Lord. They're taking ownership back of the worship of God. They're shouldering kingdom responsibility to say, yes, we want to make sure that our God is being worshipped. So they start bringing in the wood offering. The third one is it says we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits. Now this term, first fruits, is used a lot throughout the Old Testament and it describes kind of a two-fold thing. One, it's the first of what you have. So just what it sounds like, the first, you know, part of your crop, the first part of, um, you know, your, your, your income is supposed to go to the Lord. But also, it doesn't just mean the first, it also means the best. Because sometimes you might get all of it at once, right? So you, there's really no first. But what's the best portion that you have to give to the Lord? And they go through this big, long list. They're going to give the first fruits of their crops, their fruit, their sons, their animals, their dough, their oil, their contributions, on and on and on. Like, like, everything we have, God, everything we have is yours. And so we're going to give you the first fruits of all of it. It wasn't about the giving. It wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the crops or the grain or whatever. It was about showing honor to the Lord first and foremost. We give our first and we give our best to God because he he deserves the first and the best of all that we have. And that's what they're doing here. And they even throw in this word tithes that we've talked about before too, which meant literally the first 10%. So not just the first fruits, but there's an amount tied to it here, right? We're going to give the first 10% of what God has given us back to him. And again, this is just showing their priority. The priority of their hearts was for the Lord and not just for themselves. So they hadn't been doing this, so they're going to start doing it again. Sin of omission. Now all three of these kind of fall in the same categories, right? They're going to, the temple tax, they're going to give to the temple for the worship. They're going to uh, give the wood offering and serve the Lord in that way. And they're going to give their first fruits and their tithes as an offering to the Lord themselves. And so today, how does this apply to us as Christians, as a church? Well, it's really the same thing. We're supposed to worship God. He calls us to worship Him in many ways, and two of those ways, are serving and giving, right? Giving and serving with our time, giving and serving with our money, all of that comes together for us to honor the Lord and to put him first and to make sure that he is the one that has our heart, not the world and not our possessions and not other things that take our time, but we're putting God first. He's getting the first and the best of what we have to offer. So when we look at these specific sins, let me just be clear, obviously this is not an exhaustive list. This is not a list of every possible sin of commission or omission. And so maybe the sins that you struggle with are the same as some of these, but maybe they're completely different. And that's okay. The real question isn't, is your sin on this list? The real question is, is your sin specific? The people here are being very specific with the Lord of here's how we're wrong, here's how we're sinning, and here's how we're going to change it. Here's how we're going to turn towards you. When I tell my wife that I'm sorry that I upset her, that's a nice apology, but it's not necessarily changing anything. When I'm saying, I'm sorry I ate the last piece of cheesecake, next time I will make sure I save you one, now we're getting somewhere, right? Like now, now we're making a difference. When I say, say you know, I, I don't want to hurt you, that's fine. But if I don't know how I'm hurting you, then I'm probably going to do it again. It doesn't change until you get specific. To stop a sin in your life, you have to specifically identify what it is and then turn away from it. So that's the question for you today. What specific sin are you struggling with in your life right now? Don't be scared to tell God what it is, because guess what? He already knows. Okay? He knows, and he knows that you know. So now it's just time for you to let yourself know that you know. And be specific. What's that sin for you? What's that one thing that you're doing or saying or thinking What's that thing that you're idolizing that's separating you from God today? Or maybe it's not one of those. Maybe it's a sin of omission. What are you not doing that God's told you to do that's separating you from God today? For repentance to come, you have to identify it and call it out. I can't specifically turn away from abstract sin. I need specific repentance. I can't specifically turn away from abstract sin. It has to be specific in my repentance. So that's the second thing. Repentance has, it means turning from my sin. It means being specific about my sin. And then the third thing, look at verse 38, and we'll pull this together. Says, and the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God to the chambers of the storehouse. For the for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Third thing is this: repentance is turning to worship God. Repentance is turning to worship God. Notice the emphasis here in these last couple, it's really been throughout the whole chapter, but even here in these last verses, the focus, Aaron, the priests, the Levites, the house of God, all of these things are what? They are vessels of holy worship unto the Lord. Sometimes I think we miss that because we don't, we don't have priests and Levites and stuff. like that's not, our, that's not the way we do worship anymore. But for them, this was the essence of worship. The house of God with the people of God and the leaders of God making sacrifice for them. This was their focus. And they get down to the last statement and they drive it home. We will not neglect the house of our God. What they're really saying right there is we will not neglect the worship of our God. It wasn't about a house. It wasn't about priests. It wasn't about an offering. It it was about their heart for the Lord. It was about worship for their God. The reality is this. Sin always impedes our worship. Sin always impedes our worship of God. But repentance, repentance turns us away from our sin and back to where our worship belongs. Let me say it like this. Worship requires repentance. And repentance leads us to worship. Hand and glove. Can't have one without the other. So, if that's true, then, church, we need to get serious about repentance in our lives. And repentance requires Jesus. So, today, right now, I don't care if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. It applies to all of us. Which way are you facing? Are you facing and walking towards some sin in your life that you have not yet repented of? Or are you facing and following Jesus? It's one or the other. It's never both. One or the other. What's that look like for you? If you're walking in sin today, today is the day that Jesus is calling you to turn back to him. Turn away from that sin and turn to your Savior. This is the only way you get to have Jesus in your life the only way you get to do what you were created to do, your entire purpose on this earth can only be fulfilled when you get this. Turn from sin, turn to Jesus. I need Jesus. So I need repentance. That goes for every one of us in here today. Because a life of worship is composed of my sacrificial repentance, not merely song lyrics. Listen, I love coming to church. In our house, this is the best day of the week. Sunday morning, coming together with God's people and singing and, and, and crying out to the Lord. And like we love this. We love it. But melodies and lyrics. Will not get you into heaven. Worship and song is not enough to save your soul or change your heart. You have to get to repentance. No matter how good it makes you feel in the moment, no matter how much you leave with that emotional high, if you're lacking repentance, it's all for naught. So, will you repent today? whatever the Holy Spirit's putting its finger on in your life right now, whatever he's bringing to the top of your mind, Christian, will you repent of that sin today? Will you, will you turn away from that thing that you've been holding on to that you've been struggling to let go, that you thought was so important that you couldn't fully give it up for Jesus? Will you finally today say, no, I'm done with that. I'm following Jesus. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever, you haven't yet put your faith in Christ, you can do the exact same thing. All it takes is saying, God, I am done with my sinful life. I am done with that sin of my past. I am turning to put my faith in you. Please save me. Change my heart. Change my life. If you pray right now, if you cry out to God right now with that, he will do it. I promise you. I've seen it over and over and over again. So I'm gonna pray. We're gonna respond in song. But this right now, this is actually, this isn't a prayer time. This isn't a song time. This is a repentance time. This is time for you and God to do work right here. You pray whatever's on your heart and ask God to forgive you, repent of that sin, and let him change you from this day forward. If you need salvation, when I pray, you pray out to God and just ask him to come and save you right now stand let's pray heavenly father we just come to you this morning god we we do love to be in your presence we love to come on sundays we love to worship we love lord to to be here and doing this together as a church family lord and we thank you god for calling us to this for calling us out of our sin calling us into your grace and into your forgiveness god we need that Lord, it is very, very clear from your word that we are sinners in need of repentance. We need to turn from our sin and worship and follow you, God. So do that right now. Lord, convict our hearts right here, right now. Lord, bring up that specific sin in our lives that we're still holding on to, God. And then fill us with a desire to turn to you instead. God, for any who are here today or any that are listening online that have not yet believed in you for salvation, God, I pray that right now you would call them to yourself. Lord, Holy Spirit, come right now. Call them to put their faith and their trust in you alone. Lord, make this a moment of glorious repentance, a moment of life change, heart change, where we come to you open. We come to you, sinners in need of your grace. I pray all this in the name of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ.